this section covers childhood cancers. So the one thing that I would like for you to remember about childhood cancer is that there is really no screening for kids with cancer. Like adults have certain screenings that we do, um, like mammography or fecal testing, but children usually don't have any screening. A lot of times when we find out that they have cancer, it's because um, there's a lump or some other type of situation and then um, that's when we discover that they have cancer. So um, cancer is the number one death by disease in children in the United States. We still don't know what causes some of the cancer. Sometimes it happens during embryonic, embryonic development and sometimes it could be related to some type of environmental factors. We're just not really sure. But um, usually it's characterized by an uncontrolled growth of abnormal cells and then they spread within the body. And sometimes if this isn't treated, it could lead to the death of the patient. There are a few different classifications to childhood cancers. You have your hematological malignancies, which means that it has something to do with the blood or the blood system. So that would be leukemia and lymphoma. You have your solid tumors, which are your sarcomas. So that would be your Wilms tumor, your retinoblastoma, or your um, central nervous system tumors of the brain or the spine. By incidence, leukemia ranks as the highest cause of or incidence of cancer among children. Um, and usually childhood cancers happen in the deep tissues. And it's, um, as I said before, there's no screening or early detection available. A lot of times a parent or caregiver might notice something, a lump or a weird bruising during peak growth periods when the patient is having a growth spurt. Usually these pediatric cancers are very responsive to therapy. So we have a 75% overall cure rate. And usually they consider this cancer cured five years after they have received therapy. With assessment, we would look at signs and symptoms, and they could vary by age. A lot of times, a patient would present with different things. As I said, they may have um, weird bruising. They may be very pale. They may have bleeding from the gums. They might have um, a weird bulge somewhere. Maybe it's the abdomen, or they could be complaining of arm pain, leg pain, and it could be indica indicating that there's a tumor of the bone. So we look and assess, we talk about the pain, where is the pain located, um, we ask the patient to show us, we look at any abnormal skin lesions because yes, kids can also have skin cancer. We talk about was there weight loss, has it been sudden, how much, um, we look at any areas of swelling, we talk about how the patient is during, during the day, are they more tired than normal, have there been any headaches that the patient has been complaining of, any visual changes, any nausea or vomiting, um, decreased intake as far as food goes. And then we work this patient up. We do biopsies to identify any cancerous cells. And then that biopsy will also assist with staging the cancer. And we look at imaging to identify if there are any masses, if the cancer has metastasized to other areas of the body. And we also draw lab and do cultures and things like that to rule out if there's infection or if um, the lab results will identify if there's any abnormal or immature cells going on.
So once this child is diagnosed with cancer, this becomes a family issue. So we do our best to support the family as much as we can because they start thinking about the what ifs and you know how things are going to turn out. So we support the family as much as we can. We call in a large team of social workers, child life therapists, um, if they are interested in having any religious support, that's certainly allowed. And the child, if they're at a certain developmental age, they start thinking about now they've, they're losing control. They won't get to go to school. They won't get to see their friends. So they begin to act out a little bit. Um, the family is living with uncertainty of can this be survivable or not. And then they start thinking about what if we do lose this child, what's going to happen? They won't get married. They won't graduate high school. Um, you know, what are we going to do without this child? And then there's also developmental issues simply because the child now is going to be behind in school and learning because this is a very long-term plan of treatment for them, usually two to three years. So they may have developmental issues as far as learning. The chemotherapy could affect their um, learning as well, maybe visual problems or, you know, something like that. They're too weak to learn. And then um, they may start becoming having behavioral issues as well because they're worried about what is going on in their environment. How do we treat cancers? We treat with several, several different things. It could be a surgery to remove the cancerous tumor, but first they may decide to do chemotherapy and radiation to kind of shrink the tumor and get it encapsulated as much as possible before they remove it. There could be a stem cell transplant happening. They do a lot of biotherapy and immunotherapy now with children, and that's a little less harsh than the chemotherapy that happens. There, there are common medications that they give with kids, and I'll let you look over that. Cytoxin, vincristine, methotrexate, and prednisone are very common, and then they also give medications to assist with the nausea and vomiting, and that would be something like Zofran. Chemotherapy is very toxic. It affects every system in the body. We worry about um, the cardiac problems. We worry about lung issues. We worry about the kidneys and then the, um, the ears and things like that. A lot of times a patient may be left with peripheral neuropathies. So this is um, one of the slides that shows you everything that chemotherapy affects. And so um, a lot of times a patient may have bone marrow suppression. So they're going to be very in there. Also, their immune system is going to be very, very um, affected as well. So we have to talk to the parents and the caregivers about infection control. They will lose their hair. They will have vomiting. They may, may develop stomatitis. They will have neurotoxic toxicity. And then they could have hemorrhagic cystitis, which means they're um, having they're passing blood in their urine. So all of these systems are affected and we have to make sure we do as much supportive care as we can with these symptoms. Um, as I talked about, um, there's also GI disturbances. And then we have to tell the family if anyone is, if there's a pregnant caregiver that they have to be, be very careful around this patient because the body is still um, 
giving off this chemotherapy, especially in their um, diapers, if it's a child who's using diapers. So any pregnant caregivers have to be very, very careful around them. And we also tell the um, young ladies to try to do as much as they can to avoid pregnancy. Because sometimes you will have an adolescent or you may have someone who's in their early 20s who is receiving treatment for cancer and they're at um, Rady Children's Hospital because of the type of cancer they have. So as I talked about a little bit earlier, there's a multidisciplinary um, approach to treating children and their families. So this involves psychology, nutrition, oncology, the pharmacy, child life, any teachers to help with um, schoolwork that could be missed. So there's a whole team approach to this. And also if um, there's a language barrier, they have interpreters that come in to explain, especially the medical stuff so that they can understand and make proper decisions. The next section is gonna talk about leukemia. And leukemia is the most common childhood cancer and it's classified in different sections, lymphoid and myeloid. So with lymphoid, you have acute lymphoid leukemia. This usually happens in kids who are about two to five years old, but we have seen some kids um, with older, older kids have this situation. A lot of times it's easily treated. 95% achieve their remission and then 95% go on to stay in remission five years post treatment. For myeloid leukemia, uh, it's considered AML, acute myeloid leukemia. It usually happens more in adults and young adults. And we would see 85 to 90% of these go into remission. And then 55 to 65% of them live five years post-treatment. So how does leukemia happen? There could be different things and we're still not sure exactly. Sometimes it's because of a virus. Um, sometimes it could be uh, a deficiency in the immune, immune system. It could be that the patient was um, exposed to certain things environmentally. It could be a genetic issue that happened during embryonic development. Um, different things, but we're still not exactly sure why it happens or how it happens. Um, Symptoms of leukemia would be a decreased hemoglobin, neutropenia, and thrombocytopenia. So we think of the ant when we talk about this. So um, anemia, neutropenia, and thrombocytopenia would be the top three symptoms of leukemia. And it's a genetic damage to the bone marrow. So the bone marrow just starts creating all these different crazy abnormal cells and so um, you would have accumulation of blast in the bone marrow, and then that goes to the organs and the tissues and causes all the anemia and things like that. So um, ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, most common pediatric thing. What are we gonna see with these kids? We're gonna see bleeding, fever, infection. They will complain of bone pain, and then they would have um, lymph nadopathy. So we really work very hard to treat these kids. You might see um, some the skin, as far as the skin conditions, you might see petechiae or purpura. They would have abdominal pain and vomiting, be very pale. They would have weakness and fatigue, bruising and bleeding, um, hepatosplenomegaly, 
So sometimes these kids might present as a certain way, like they look really sick. And because of all the bruising, they may get worked up as a child who's suffering some type of abuse. So this is when we really have to pay attention to what's going on and get a really good history and physical and um, listen to the child and the parents about how the symptoms first came up. So um, we would find out if there was any history of any type of infection that could have potentially started this. What type of bone pain are they having? How long has that been going on? Signs and symptoms of anemia, looking, you know, at the pallor, the paleness, looking at the skin for petechiae. Um, the patient usually will get a lumbar puncture and then um, asking if there's any blood showing up, say they coughed up some sputum or any blood in their urine or anything like that. Um, so we do labs and we'll do WBCs, platelets, we'll look at the hemoglobin and all these types of types of things. And then um, usually we cannot diagnose leukemia from a simple CBC because 10% of the patients will have a normal CBC. But when we look at them clinically, they look sick. So the definitive diagnosis for leukemia would be a bone marrow aspiration and a biopsy, okay? And so um, we would do the lumbar puncture and a lot of times as we're doing the lumbar puncture, so as not to keep doing different various procedures on the patient, we would do an intrathecal installation of chemotherapy at that same time. And then um, we would talk to the parents about different aspects of treatment. Usually this treatment lasts for two to three years. Um, if they're diagnosed early, it's a very good favorable outcome. It's unfavorable when the WBCs are greater than 50,000 at diagnosis. Um, there have been a few cases of this at Rady's and this is when the child is admitted to the ICU right away. And then um, we do start treatment on them, but we also let the parents know that this is going to be palliative treatment just to um, help ease the pain and some of the other symptoms. Um, there are different phases of the therapy for leukemia. You have induction, consolidation, and maintenance. And then, um, as I talked about before, usually the length of treatment is two to three years. So when this diagnosis happens, we have to let the family know that this is how long it's gonna take. It's not like they're gonna be in and out. They'll come in for a hospital stay for chemotherapy. They may have to go to the clinic for different infusions. And this is, um, barring that there are no complications, the length of treatment would be two to three years. When do we know that the leukemia is in remission? When we have absence of signs and symptoms of the disease, the, the blast and the bone marrow have greatly decreased and they have near normal blood counts and they've completed chemotherapy and other treatments. Um, the nursing priorities would be monitoring and helping to treat symptoms for um, nausea, monitoring the nutrition, monitoring if they have constipation or diarrhea, um, making sure that everything is kept clean and aseptic so as not to, for the patient to get an infection and um, making sure the room is clear of all clutter so that there's no injury to the patient, helping with the treatment of mucositis, 
um, supporting them through alopecia or the hair loss. And a lot of times, since this patient is, is their first time ever, ever receiving chemotherapy, we have to be on alert for the case that they may have an anaphylactic reaction. So every room has a kit in there in case that happens. So we also, as nurses, provide pain relief. So pain medication as often as the patient needs it. We monitor their central nervous system for any issues with that. Maybe they develop tremors. Maybe they develop double vision. Maybe it's a very bad headache, things like that. And then um, when the nutritionist is involved, they'll put this patient on a high-calorie, high-protein diet to assist with the um, anemia. And there are also lots of blood transfusions that go on on the oncology unit. So um, that is something that also we have to monitor the patient for the side, side effects of that. So um, to administer chemotherapy as a nurse, you must be certified. So all the nurses on the oncology unit go for a, a class for certification and then they have to keep that certification up um, every year or every two years. And then um, once they're ready to administer chemotherapy, there's lots of checks that go on. There's two nurses, the pharmacist, everyone checks and checks and rechecks the chemotherapy before it's actually infused into the child. And then they manage the side effects such as the nausea and vomiting, the pain and things like that that happen. If there's a fever, they will treat the fever. A lot of times a patient will come in and get the chemotherapy, stay a little bit, a few days and go home. And then once they're home, they start developing symptoms of an infection. And so this is when the patient would come back and they would have blood cultures drawn from their pick line or whatever line they have and get treated with antibiotics. It's very important to educate the family, the caregiver, and even the patient if they're developmentally of age about what's going on and what medications to take and how to um, manage this problem. So um, we do a whole family approach. We care for the child and the family. And the nurses usually pick up this patient as their primary patient. So every time the patient is admitted to the unit, that they will have the, that same team of nurses. So the nurses really get to know the children and the family very closely. We do everything that we can to help the child remain normal. So if they have a favorite pillow that they need to bring in or a stuffy or pajamas or something like that. They try to allow that as much as possible. And also we have um, child life therapists work with these children to help them with their fears. Um, sometimes it may even include psychology to help work with fears and depression and things like that. Um, and so Knowledge is power with these families. The more they know, the better they feel. So keeping them up to date on lab results and treatment modalities and things like that is very helpful for the family to get through this. Um, other things that we implement is neutropenic precautions. So there's no live plants, no raw fruits or vegetables, no standing water. So usually the patient would have bottled water and once it's been open for a certain amount of time, they get rid of that and then they're, you know, they have to use a new bottle. We talk to them about um, they're going to be behind on their vaccines because they can't have any live virus or bacterial immunizations. We also talk to them about 
trying to decrease exposure, especially when chickenpox could be in the community or when we had the large measles outbreak a few years ago. We really um, educated the parents and the families on that. And then um, keeping the patient in isolation. So that could potentially be, um, especially if their immune system is really, really low, the no visitors policy, or if they're kind of okay and they're able to get out of their room to wear a mask at all times to protect them from infection. I put the next slide in here is bleeding precautions. So um, with the older kids, if they're gonna use a razor, they need to make sure it's an electric razor. No aspirin because that um, would of course cause more bleeding. We decrease needle sticks by giving them either a pick line or a port or something like that so that we're not constantly sticking them. And if we do have to use a needle, it would be a small, small gauge needle. Every time we do an assessment with these patients, we ask about, is, are you having nosebleeds? Are your gums bleeding when you brush your teeth? And we look for any bruises. And also, um, we do our best to protect them from injury. As I said, say it's a toddler or a baby who's up in the room, we do everything we can to pad the room the corners of the room so that they don't um, fall down and bump their head and then cause bleeding or something. Signs and symptoms of infection in a child with leukemia would be um, different from our basic infection. A lot of times we don't see any response for as far as inflammation or swelling or anything like that. The most likely symptom we might find is that the child has a fever and that's um, sometimes it's just not even a high fever. It could be just a change in body temperature. Some kids present with a lower than normal body temperature. And then that's when we go ahead and start to work them up for signs of infection. So how do we do this? We usually do blood cultures from the area of the pick line. And then we also do peripheral blood cultures to make sure that we are treating the infection properly. We go ahead and start them on some antibiotics. We give um, medications for the fever if needed. And then um, we would make sure we do, um, make sure that the blood cultures are started early on and then we may do a, an evaluation of the urine. When a child has thrombocytopenia, we take extra precautions with them. We would assess them for bleeding and bruising. We would assess to see if they have nosebleeds or in, in girls to see if their menstrual period is heavier than normal. We make sure that we don't do any rectal temps or suppositories. And then we um, avoid NSAIDs, aspirin, and we do everything we can to avoid constipation. So this may include stool softeners. To look at a child who presents with suppression of bone marrow, due to chemotherapy, they would be very, very bruised and it almost looks like they have been abused. So um, this is one of the large signs of a child with leukemia. Um, children with leukemia also can present as being anemic and that's when they have a low hemoglobin and a low red blood cell on their laboratory results. They would have issues with maybe possibly dizziness or maybe they have a fainting spell. They would be tachycardic. They would talk about having headaches a lot. 
shortness of breath and be pale? And how do we treat the kids who are anemic based on a factor of chemotherapy? We would give them colony stimulating factors or CSFs, and that's usually um, an infusion in the IV therapy. Um, other things that we worry about is mucositis. This is a common condition that happens with children who are receiving chemotherapy. Um, so the, the mouth, the whole oral cavity is very affected and it's also very painful. So we do what we can to manage the pain and get the patient more comfortable. We modify their diet so that they aren't having a lot of um, citric juices or things that are um, spicy. And we use non-alcoholic mouthwash because a lot of mouthwashes contain alcohol. We would make sure they stay hydrated. A lot of times they don't feel like having anything by mouth. So we would put them on some maintenance IV fluids. And we would do our best to keep up with their nutrition. And sometimes they will um, may require an antifungal medication. And the doctor will also prescribe a rinse at least four times a day for them, an oral rinse or some type of um, oral care. So um, we increase the oral care. We I'll talk to them about using a soft toothbrush or maybe even those toothette sponge things to um, do their oral care. We provide them with as much cold stuff like um, ice chips or ice popsicles. And then, um, as I said, we monitor and modify their diet. Um, also for nausea, they take really good care with pre-medicating kids before chemo with something for nausea. And then they also will prehydrate them before they start the chemo. So they will give them maintenance IV fluids plus to make sure that they're very well hydrated. And then they will um, administer medications for the nausea and vomiting. We always worry about nutrition with these children. They will be um, behind as far as their weight and um, what their intake is. So in order to encourage that, they do work with the nutritionist to talk about what, are, what things that they like, what things can they tolerate. Um, we encourage small frequent meals that are high protein and high calorie. So it may just be a snack or a, a light sandwich or something like that, nothing too heavy. Um, we um, encourage them to have fluids throughout the day to keep hydrated. And then um, there may be other supplements or whatever that are required for them to stay up to date with their nutritional status. Um, to avoid constipation, we give a high fiber diet. We offer stool softeners. If that doesn't help, we offer laxatives. We don't do anything as far as rectal, no rectal temps, no rectal medications. And then we encourage increased activity, even if they are confined to their room because they're on isolation for whatever reason. We give them little exercises to do in the room or maybe even have the physical therapist come in and help them with increased activity. If the patient has diarrhea, we need to find out why. Is this caused from chemotherapy or is this another cause because their um, immune system has been lowered? So we will send stool cultures to see if there's potentially C. diff or some other type of infection going on. We start them on a low residue diet. We give um, skin protection, especially for the kids who are diapered. We'll talk to the wound care nurses about barrier creams. We look at every stool to make sure that there's no blood in there. And um, we just continue to monitor them. For the kids who have 
alopecia or loss of hair, it usually starts within two to three weeks after they've received their chemotherapy treatment. And um, we just do our best to support them and refer them to outside agencies and resources for the fact that they may get fitted for a wig or, you know, to show them cute little hats and scarves. But not all the chemotherapeutic drugs cause hair loss in children. So um, we just try to give them support in coping with the fact that they look different. Some parents will um, go ahead and shave their head so that they can look like the child and make the child feel more comfortable. And then there are some nurses who do that in different various activities like that. If a child was to experience anaphylaxis or a, an allergic reaction to chemo, this usually happens within the first 24 minutes. So we observe them just like we would do if we were doing a blood transfusion. We stay in there and we watch them for any signs and symptoms that could potentially happen during the first 20 minutes. So that could be wheezing, they could start itching a lot, they may have hypotension, they may become cyanotic, or they may even just say that they don't really feel well. So if this happens, we definitely stop the infusion of the chemotherapy as soon as possible. Um, there is emergency equipment that stays in the room and that would be the anaphylaxis kit. And if this child is getting really bad, that would include the code cart as well. The next slide just shows you metastasis, and this could be in a child or an adult, and it just shows you, um, explains to you what metastasis is and um, how it happens. Other pediatric cancers would be your Hodgkin's lymphoma and your non-Hodgkin's and your neuroblastoma, and this is just in here to um, guide you on what other conditions you may see if you float to the hematology unit. Um, the next few slides are talking about children's perceptions of death because, yes, sometimes they don't survive this cancer. And um, it's very important for the nurses to be involved with this as well. This is part of your, unfortunately, part of your nursing career. You may have to deal with death and help family members through dealing with death and also help the child as well. So, um, a lot of times the infant and the toddlers are not aware that they are dying, that death is coming soon. And they just pick up on what's going on in the room and they feel people's anxiety and they see that family members are crying. And so then they start to get anxious and stuff like that. Um, the preschool child doesn't realize that death is permanent. And so um, they have magical thinking and fantasize about what might be going on. This is where um, we'll also incorporate social worker, any um, clergyman or whatever, any uh, child life therapist, full support for the child and the family to help them get through this. And so we encourage the parents to stay with the child throughout the whole thing, um, you know, comfort them, love them, hug on them. Even if the child is on a monitor, we... Um, turn the monitor away so that they're not staring at the monitor the whole time and they're actually focusing on the child. If the child has siblings, we'll ask the um, child life specialist to come in and um, assist with that and talk with the siblings and things like that. Um, with the older children, the adolescents, and sometimes even the school-age kids um, who are very mature, we ask them, you know, how would they like to do things? So they may start creating memories 
art or they may do a videotape, something for social media and things like that so that their family members and friends can have a memory of them. Some adolescents even want to plan their services or choose the outfit that they wish to wear and things like that. So there's a lot of uh, insight that goes into preparing the child and the family for impending death. And so I would encourage you to watch a few of the videos on the patient stories page. And also to know that um, we do provide the patient and the family with outside resources. And also at some point during the year, the hospital will have an, a ceremony to honor those patients that have passed away.